Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 268 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to talk about everything that went down this week in the worlds of AEW and NXT. We had NXT present us with Vengeance Day, a special episode as it makes its final appearance, hopefully forever, uh, on Sci-Fi. Whereas AEW building off an extremely strong show last week, and spoiler alert, they delivered an extremely strong dynamite this week as well. So, plenty to discuss on today's show, but I would be remiss. It would not be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. If I did not remind you, this show is So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review for this show. Let people know how much you love it. Those ratings, they take you literally a second to leave. All you have to do is go to the page, hit the five stars. The reviews, okay, those take a little bit longer. You have the time, okay? You're probably listening to us. I mean, don't do it while you're driving in the car or something like that. If you're on your lunch break, you're sitting on the toilet at work or at home, or you're making snacks for the kids, whatever the hell you're doing, you can probably pick up your phone, take, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds, leave a review if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, tell people why you love the show and tell them why they should listen as we are off on the road, not only to Revolution for AEW, but WrestleMania for WWE coming up in just about five or six weeks. I'm losing track of time. As I said, there is a lot to discuss on today's show. We're going to start this week with NXT, then move over to AEW because NXT did have a special show, a reminder or some information for new listeners. Uh, We have timestamps in all of our episodes. So if you only watch AEW, you don't want to know what's going on in NXT, Hit up our episode description, and you'll be able to know exactly when to jump to. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show, because I think what's going on across every major program on TV for WWE products and AEW products, I really do believe it is important for wrestling fans to know everything that's going on. Uh, Regarding Cody Rhodes and Brandy Rhodes, that news story, we have an entire episode devoted to that, so be sure to hit our archives We do about 30 minutes on it. We did a two for Tuesday for you for the first time in the history of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So we have the Cody and Brandy episode, and we had the weekly WWE Elimination Chamber ultimate preview episode. Of course, all of that is ahead of the WWE Elimination Chamber instant analysis coming Saturday afternoon as soon as that pay-per-view goes off the air. At the end of the show, I will give you a full breakdown of our remaining schedule for the week, but be sure to listen to both of those shows, of course, listen to this. There is a little bit more to talk about regarding Cody. I will mention that right before we get into the AEW segment of today's show. But as I said, we are going to start off with NXT Vengeance Day, not so instant analysis, because of course, we are taping this on Thursday, more than 24 hours after that show went off the air. So Vengeance Day opened with a video of Toxic Attraction, like they had a text message chain where they were all talking shit and then thirsting over some of the guys on the product. I'll say it was a good concept, but a pretty bad execution. It was just a bit too corny and scripted. If it had been a little bit more realistic, I might have bought into it. But it was thematic, I guess, in theory, talking about Vengeance Day and Valentine's Day and love, and I guess in this case, sex more than love. But 
you get the point. So whatever, it was okay. As far as the way we're going to break this down, I'm not going to do it in terms of order of operation, what happened on the show. I'm going to talk about uh, what happened that was most important to the product uh, going forward from a main event perspective all the way down. So let's kick things off with that main event. We had a promo uh, from Tommaso Ciampa, who was in his typical spot in like the garage, saying he doesn't or he didn't spend all this time in his career building up NXT and making a mark in WWE for it to all be disrespected and thrown away by people like Dolph Ziggler, who basically keeps thinking it's the minor leagues, but doesn't realize NXT is more than that. He said he'd also be watching the championship match because NXT is his home, and he wants the title back from Braun Breaker. Ziggler then cut a promo backstage, I think it was, joking that Ciampa would probably sell 8x10s of his quick appearance that he had on Raw, just like an independent wrestler would, like out the back of his car. He also said he'd be watching the title match close ahead of his bout next week with Ciampa. So Champa versus Ziggler next week on NXT. And it feels to me at least like they're going to go triple threat or fatal four-way at stand and deliver with these guys, Braun Breaker and potentially Santos Escobar, who was Breaker's challenge for the NXT title um, on this Vengeance Day show. So let's get right into that match, Breaker versus Santos for the NXT uh, championship. This was obviously the main event, but it only got about 12 minutes. Braun got an entrance where the Vengeance Day event logo lit on fire. And that theme kind of played into his Titan Tron and his gear, which was just all flames. Escobar wore pants, which is not something he normally does. He usually just wears the regular tights. And he did it in an ode to Eddie Guerrero. I think it was like the exact tights that Eddie wore um, for a period of time in WCW when he was like teaming with Rey Mysterio. Now, this was a slow match. Breaker stopped an Escobar punch, then took out Legado del Fantasma for distracting him. Uh, Electro Lopez caught the official's attention, so Ziggler ran into the ring, drilled Braun with a super kick, and that got a really big pop, but it was a near fall. Ziggler lost his mind outside that it didn't finish the match. Then he brawled with Champa. Escobar hit a really nice tornado DDT, but missed a frog splash. Braun then escaped the Phantom Driver and hit a spear before adding his press power slam to retain the title. The finish that I just described was way hotter than the rest of the match was. There was never really a question about Braun winning, And it probably would have been better for Escobar to get a real false finish of his own instead of doing it with Ziggler's help. But it was a worthy main event for the show. It was an entertaining segment when all is said and done. You guys know that I do not grade every single match on TV shows. But when we do get the special event, I grade every match. So just putting that out there for why all of Vengeance Day will have grades and only certain AEW matches will have grades this week. But for this one... I went 3.25 stars and a B. That may actually be a little bit generous now that I'm thinking about it. That's just the note I wrote down. Three stars and a B minus is probably more appropriate, but I would need to see it again. The finish just was really hot. And the rest of the action in the match, there was nothing wrong with it. We also had a North American championship match on the show. Carmelo Hayes against Cameron Grimes. Uh, Mello got a pretty weird video package and his mic was not on when he tried to speak at the start of his entrance. Uh, Mello hit a cool springboard draping leg drop. Grimes came back with his Spanish crossbody and an awesome tilt-a-whirl sit-down Uranagi. Mello hit a spring uh, shoulder tackle for a near fall, and Grimes then got one after a countered super kick. Then Grimes hit a poison rana with a really sick sell for Mello, very rock style, like selling the stunner. Uh, he punt kicked Trick Williams and hit a flying crossbody for a 2.8, and the crowd just lost its mind at that point. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. Everyone was getting up screaming. Uh, Mello dodged the cave in inside and outside of the ring, but Grimes hit Trick with it off of the ring apron at ringside. 
Mello then drove Grimes headfirst into the corner of a barricade. Then Grimes eventually escaped the crossface in the ring with some inventive uh, creativity, like trying to like, get out of it. Uh, Mello finally hit the flying leg drop to the back of Grimes' head, and he got the win in 13 minutes. This was just a stellar match from bell to bell, perfectly booked and wrestled. I love that the North American Championship in NXT is treated like the Intercontinental title used to be, the workers' belt. And these guys absolutely put in work here. It did end a little bit suddenly for me, but I'm still really high on it. I went 4.25 stars and an A. No one lost coming out of it. And that's always indicative of good booking. Mello, when I look at this guy, I mean, there were so many comparisons made right off the bat to like a little bit of The Rock's charisma and Kofi Kingston's athletic ability. But the guy he really reminds me of is Shawn Michaels. It's the talent. It's the mic work, the presence. Just everything top to bottom about him is like a new age Shawn Michaels. It's insane. He is the total package. I've said it, I don't know how many times already on this show. Carmelo Hayes has it. And he is a total package. Definitely a future star. Maybe one day a WWE champion. I think we're seeing the beginnings of a guy who's going to take the main roster by storm when he gets that opportunity. We also had Pete Dunne against Tony D'Angelo in a weaponized steel cage match, which I thought was a pretty cool concept, even though it's been done before. For them to kind of spell it out that way was cool. This opened the show. D'Angelo arrived in a Maybach. Dunne broke a chair over his back and the whole thing exploded. D'Angelo hit a Mishinoku driver into a garbage can. Dunne then put a wrench around his fingers, bent them backwards and stomped on D'Angelo's hand. D'Angelo hit a superplex off the top of the cage, then zip-tied Dunn's hands behind his back as he took punishment. Dunn countered a slam into a guillotine choke, leading Tony to grab pliers and break the cuffs. Otherwise, he wasn't going to be able to escape the submission. It's a really smart spot. Dunn powerbombed D'Angelo across the ring through a propped-up table for a 2.5. Dunn stopped a crowbar shot and broke his cricket bat over D'Angelo before hitting bitter end for what was a surprising 2.8 false finish. It wasn't the end of the match. D'Angelo caught Dunn with a low blow and is spinning Fisherman's neckbreaker for a near fall. Dunn then pulled out a hidden crowbar from outside the ring and countered a swing from D'Angelo with one of his own, hitting Tony in the back of the head and then hitting one more bitter end to win the match. This was great. It was a 10-minute barn burner as an opener for WWE NXT in this case to get that level of brutality across without forcing or telling or the wrestlers on their own deciding to blade is so impressive. All the big spot stuff still looked stiff and legitimate. There was good match psychology, two false finishes, and a strong conclusion. Plus, the right person won the feud. I really don't have a negative word to say about this match. You could say it was too spot heavy, but the entire point is they were trying to do a 20-minute matches worth of spots inside of 10 minutes because they didn't have a lot of time due to it being on a TV show and there being so many matches on the show. So I went with 3.5 stars and a B as the grade here. But if you went up a quarter star, 3.75 B plus, I'd be okay with it because these guys worked their asses off. Like I said, it was booked well. There was a lot of really smart spots in the match and the right person won. So all in all, this was just a great opener to the show. Uh, Dunn approached Mello backstage later, and he appears to be the next challenger for the North American Championship, which is completely appropriate. And if they do that match at Stand and Deliver, that's going to be an absolute banger. And going into that event, probably the favorite for match of the night. We had MSK versus Brothers Creed in the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic final. 
Both teams cut backstage promos with the Creeds and Malcolm Bivens passionately guaranteeing a win while MSK was really loose. MSK got a remixed theme with Dusty's American Dream while Bivens gave a speech to Diamond Mine and then held a mock-up of John Cena's Never Give Up towel that when you turned it over said, nah, you should. And Bivens is an absolute treasure. I'm just so glad that we get to see him every week and I, I hope more Bivens is a good thing. So more Bivens, grow the stable, move him to the main roster. I don't care. I want more Malcolm Bivens. Wesley hit a huge tope cannonball out of the ring to start the match. Then Julius Creed pounced him off the apron into the announce table. Nash Carter went on a run after a hot tag. They did the push moonsault off the ring apron outside onto Julius. Carter added a senton bomb and Lee hit a corkscrew for a 2.5. Julius then ate a Caven style stomp while he was seated in the ring, but Brutus Creed broke the fall. Julius caught Carter on a tope and hit his judo slam outside. Then he rolled him inside and hit his basement clothesline for the 1-2-3, sending the Creeds to victory. Bivens celebrated with emotion, uh, both outside at the after the bell and during the trophy ceremony. And my recording of NXT didn't work, so I couldn't tell if this match only went eight minutes or if there was a commercial that it's my you know, on-demand recording skipped over. Maybe it did go a little bit longer than I could count, but I could only count eight minutes in terms of full screen action on TV. But it did feel too short for... The finale of, of this tournament, teams this good, action that good, it really felt like it should have gone longer. So I went 3.25 stars and a B for this because not enough happened for it to go higher. What we got was really fun, but the finish also came pretty suddenly as well. So it, it didn't ever reach that next level for me to go into a plus range here or into an A range. Uh, the Creed the Creed Brothers winning, that was fine, Right. I thought it was the wrong move unless MSK is getting called up. This was indicative of some of the decisions that NXT has been making recently, giving this newer talent, the younger talent, big wins when they're still developing and they don't need to be winning these matches right now. You don't need to push the Creed brothers to win the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic and win the championships if they're just going to sit in NXT for another two years. Spread it out. Give them time. Same with Braun Breaker. They did not need to rush Braun Breaker into winning the championship and have two championship matches and three matches in total against Tommaso Ciampa. They could have spaced that out over a year and at the end of the year have Breaker win and now you coronate him. So I just don't get it. It feels to me like the Creeds are going to go right up against Imperium for the tag team titles that stand and deliver and probably win them. And if that happens, again, I'm not going to say it's bad booking necessarily because the Creeds are over. They're young. There's a lot of potential in them. It all makes sense. But it just feels to me like the whole thing's being rushed. Imperium was in the ring. Uh, the former Walter told the ring announcer his name is Gunta. Uh, that's how you should say his name. So the crowd chanted Walter. Uh, there was a stupid USA chant. Uh, Gunta said his sights were on gold and he'd be watching the main event closely. So now you have him also potentially wanting to go after Braun Breaker. And that obviously is interesting to me. Uh, Solo Sokoa interrupted. He got Uso chance. He said he'd wipe the mat with the ring general and make him his bitch. And the segment, like, it was kind of off the rails to start. Solo comes in, saves the whole thing. He already seems to be really good on the mic, just like his brothers. And you know what? I badly want to see a match that I never even thought of once before in my life. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> I mean, between Solo Sokoa and Gunther, there's going to be a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. You could even say that there might be no water, no bread 
but just meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. So the way they've pushed Sokoa to start, Gunther being Gunther, Gunther being Gunther, Gunta being Gunta. I don't even know how to say his name. Um, <laughs> they're both awesome, is my point. Obviously, Walter is the superior of the two. But man, he's trimmed down. He looks to be in the best shape I've ever seen him in, at least, in terms of as long as I've been watching him. Uh, and Solo is on the rise right now in NXT. This is an awesome match. Extremely excited for it. And we'll see what happens here. I do believe that Gunta should be the one who takes the championship off Braun Breaker, whether it's stand and deliver, which I don't think they're going to do, whether it's six months down the line, that progression, in my opinion, makes the most sense. He's the one guy who can beat him, and and Ciampa is too. I shouldn't say the one guy. There's a couple people in NXT. The two most notable would be Gunta and Tommaso Ciampa as the ones who could beat Braun and not hurt him at all. That's basically what I'm getting at. We had a women's tag team championship match, Toxic Attraction versus Indy Hartwell and Persia Parada. Some dude at the end of the ramp got caught dead on camera, turning his head as Gigi Dolan walked by. And, you know, we could theoretically criticize the guy, but that really is the entire point of the gimmick. You know what I mean? Toxic Attraction hit a pair of flying apron sentons before the bell. Mandy Rose got ejected from ringside. Parada hit her double Samoan drop but got run into the steps. JC Jane tripped Hartwell, who was stuck on her own, and Toxic Attraction combined for a high-low with a spinning kick to retain the titles. The only problem here really was the match length. For the only women's match on the show to be this short, even in a special show, it just was ridiculous. It should have been longer. The work was okay. I went with 2.25 stars and a C. It wasn't bad. Certainly wasn't good. We also got a number of women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic segments because that part of the tournament starts next week. Parada was building Hartwell up after the loss, saying they're going to get another chance in the Dusty Cup. Dexter Loomis came in to console Indy and lead her out, so Duke Hudson did the same to Parada, which was interesting. Raquel Gonzalez's partnership with Cora Jade began at a 5 a.m. wake-up call for training. They did a whole montage of them training and working out together, and with Cora kind of reluctantly going along. Not the most entertaining thing, but I will say parts of it were kind of cute, so that was nice. Uh, Wendy Chu... Asked Damari Miller to tag with her, but Miller said she has a partner already. Dakota Kai was talking to herself when Chu asked her to join up. So Kai then started debating with herself. Presumably the gimmick here is she can't trust anyone else due to all her failed friendships. So she has an imaginary friend and that's who she's talking to. It's not really being executed that well. And then lastly, Io Shirai chose not to break stuff when Kaylee Ray offered. So Kaylee Ray convinced her. She grabbed the bat, smacked a bunch of cups and dishes, broke some stuff. Then Zoe Stark walked up to EO. EO took her mug, broke that, and it was in a fun friendship type of way. Uh, and Zoe was basically happy that EO and KLR were working out together. And that was really it. So they haven't done a great job building the Dusty Rhodes Women's Tag Team Classic, but they have been telling numerous storylines over the last few weeks to get us into some of the makeshift teams that are going to be there. So it's, at least it's something. Uh, Grayson Waller brought out four officers to arrest LA Knight for breaking the protection order last week. Knight showed footage of Waller attacking him two weeks ago, saying the order works both ways. Waller said they only go one way in Australia, but the officers walked out. Knight stomped him, threw him outside, saying he'd stomp his ass out next week. Decently entertaining segment, nothing that special. Briggs and Jensen were at the bar talking about their Valentine's Day dates. Briggs said Jensen owed him $50 for playing wingman with Casey Catanzaro. 
Jensen said dinner with Kate and Carter went well, but she ended up paying for herself and said he's like a brother to her. Some NXT woman who I don't even recognize was behind the bar as the bartender. So she has a second job, I guess. Um, And they felt bad for Jensen being friend-zoned. I had mentioned last week that last week was an improvement over what they did previously. That was true. This week imploded. It was terrible across the board. As a taped segment, you'd think they would do extra takes and like try to put something decent on screen. The acting was horrendous. I know Jensen and these guys are young. I get it. But you got to be better if it's going to be on TV. I just can't believe NXT keeps airing bad stuff when they clearly are able to, and as they did in the show, produce good and better stuff. Uh, Nikita Lyons got a third vignette. Not as bad as the first, not as good as the second. This time she danced and showed off her dump truck. It seems like the only thing she might possibly do well is fight. So it's a good thing this is wrestling. Stick to the second vignette where she's impressing with a training montage, not her terrible uh, musicianship. Is that even a word? And her pretty lackluster TikTok style dancing. Those two things do not need to be on television. Overall, though, I will say Vengeance Day, it was a successful show. Entertaining matches, no real down moments. I wish it had been a little bit more thematic. That's a minor gripe. And while some special NXT shows over the years in the past have felt like takeovers, this just felt like a special TV show. And that's okay. You know, this is not NXT. It's not black and gold NXT. It is this NXT 2.0. They are doing something different. As long as when they put a special show up, it ends up being good. That's really all you can ask for. And I did think this was really good. I don't really, I didn't really write down a grade for the entire show, but if I was to grade it, it would probably be just a flat B. There was one really damn good match, one very good match, the Pete Dunne, Tony D'Angelo weaponized steel cage, the great one, of course, Carmelo Hayes and Cameron Grimes. And then everything else was just, it was good. It was fine. You know, nothing, nothing to be upset about, but also nothing to crow about like we did so many times with Halloween Havoc two years ago or the Great American Bash in the past or some events like that. It didn't get there. But what's really interesting is they actually have a really good card set up for next week. Uh, Tommaso Champ against Dolph Ziggler, LA Knight versus Grayson Waller. That's a, Those are two feuds, uh, Knight and Waller in particular, one that we've been waiting to get a big match on. And then the women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic begins. So we're probably going to get two really interesting matches there as well. So good episode of NXT. And I'm looking forward to what should be a good episode of NXT next week. So with that, let's move over to AEW. Uh, So before we get into Dynamite and Rampage, which as always, I mix up and I'll break them down storyline by storyline as opposed to show by show. Just, you know, wanted to briefly touch back on the Cody Rhodes, Brandy Rhodes situation. Some stuff's come out, you know, since the uh, parting of ways, I guess is the best way to put it with AEW. And the best way to kind of go over them is very briefly to remind you that these are all unconfirmed reports. It's just things that different journalists, some more respected than than others, and I try to only discuss on this show reports from the respected journalists, or ones I respect, and I've been doing this for a long time in the wrestling business and journalism business, Um, what they have to say, you know, what they have to say about Cody Brandy and some of the backstage ongoings. Apparently, the reports are pretty simple. Uh, Cody had an option on his contract, but it looked like it was in a period where They both knew they needed to renegotiate one way or the other. Cody reportedly was upset that Tony has basically taken 100% control of creative and booking. And further than that, Cody wanted to be paid, reportedly, uh, like a top star in AEW along the lines of CM Punk 
and Brian Danielson, whereas his contract was lower than theirs, despite him being an EVP, despite him being a founding member of AEW, and despite him largely being the catalyst for AEW existing. I mean, you have to remember it was Cody's return, for, or not return, his um, his trek in the independent scene coming out of, of requesting his release from AEW, his list of all the opponents he wanted to fight, going and working with, I believe he did a stint in Impact, but uh, Global Force Wrestling, maybe it was called at the time, Ring of Honor, New Japan, meeting and joining uh, the Bullet Club with the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, and more than anything else, you know, bringing all in into existence. That was Cody's baby, and the Bucks and Kenny and others certainly helped, but it was Cody. Cody was the genesis of that entire thing. So I can understand why, when it comes time to renegotiate, you say, hey, look, I'm not saying necessarily I need to be the highest paid guy in the company, but I'm among your top baby faces. I'm an EVP. I started the company with you, and you signed two guys in CM Punk and Brian Danielson who are huge names and deserve to be among the top paid, but I want to be paid like them. I think that's a reasonable request for Cody. Now, I also think it's completely reasonable for Tony Khan to kind of say, well, Cody, you know what? This is not the company it was when we first started it, basically three years ago at this point. Number one, the creative is far better than it's ever been with me in complete control. I think that's very tough to argue against. And beyond that, uh, your EVP role is marginal. Like, I don't even know what Cody specifically did, community outreach and some of that stuff, but you can find other people to do it is the point I'm making. And in terms of an on-screen character, what you've been booking for yourself or asking me to book for you, it has not worked over the last six months or so, maybe even a year. Uh, People are kind of turning on you, not just in a you know, John Cena, the most polarizing character in professional wrestling history, where you're getting very strong heel reactions and very strong face reactions. With Cody, it was kind of lukewarm uh, in both directions. Some people cheered him a little bit and some people booed him a little bit, but that's because the character in the booking was so inconsistent. He kept going off to do reality shows and, you know, there was a myriad reasons why that happened, but largely because of the booking wasn't very good. Um, So, I think it makes complete sense why this split happened. You're looking back on it with if these reports are accurate. And there's also a report out there from Sports Illustrated's Justin Barrasso that Cody will be returning to WWE. I mean, he hasn't said that he signed. He hasn't said that a date is is scheduled or anything like that. The report is he could start taping uh, return segments, vignettes, or some type of videos in the Performance Center as soon as this coming weekend. That seems a little far-fetched to me, but I'm not saying it's wrong. Um... But that's the report. The report right now is that Cody will be signing with WWE as if as if it's a foregone conclusion. He's the only one reporting that at this juncture. Others have reported that WWE and Cody's people have been in talks, which makes sense. And that's where we're left. So that's the Cody Rhodes update. I wish I had more for you. Um, if and when he does sign with WWE, I will certainly have a take about that. Uh, but as I said, on that 30-minute show, which you should definitely go back and listen to from Tuesday... Vintage Chris Vanini, we had a nice conversation back and forth. I don't know that Cody leaving AEW hurts AEW that much. And I don't know that Cody joining WWE helps WWE that much. But the proof is in the pudding, as they say. So we'll have to see what happens if and when he does make his debut. What happens from a business perspective, a storytelling perspective, and an entertainment 
perspective. Because really, what I care about more than anything else on this show is, are you entertaining me while I'm watching your product? Speaking of that, let's talk about what went down in AEW this week across Dynamite and Rampage. On Dynamite, CM Punk opened the show, sitting pipe bomb style in the ring, wearing a mid-shirt, putting himself over for changing wrestling. He talked a bunch of shit about MJF and announced their match will be at Revolution, duh. Uh, Then he pulled out a dog collar, challenging MJF to be tethered to him with a dog collar match. Punk then showed a picture of MJF standing next to him at an autograph signing as a kid, and he promised to stain the canvas with MJF's blood. MJF came out, but he was speechless, kind of like Papa Doc, so he just dropped the mic and left. This was Punk's best promo in months, and probably his second best of the feud coming out of that first back and forth they had, which was incredible. It amped up the excitement for the match, it started Dynamite hot, and there's not really much more you can ask. I'm never a fan personally of chain matches or strap stipulations or anything like that, but that's just a personal preference. If the match is good, the match is good. It doesn't really matter what I think about it going in. I'd have chosen a different stipulation, but they've been mentioning Piper in Portland so many times, not just in this promo, but before this promo, that it was clear that this was a long-term plan and it was going in this direction. On Rampage, Brian Danielson was backstage and he said he wasn't bothered by John Moxley teaming with CM Punk last week and that his offer is a long-term relationship. Matt Seidel said he didn't like what Danielson said last week. Brian clarified that Lee Moriarty needs to learn violence, not just good wrestling, despite him respecting Seidel. So they set up a match on Dynamite. So on Dynamite, we had Danielson versus Moriarty. They added some extremely strange lyrics to Brian's entrance music that actively makes it worse. I don't know why they did that. There was a spot where they locked legs and fought upside down on their heads. Moriarty escaped the label lock with the ropes and hit Danielson with some suplexes. Danielson hit the running knee, but refused to cover. He stomped on Moriarty's face while he was out cold and flexed while putting him in a triangle sleeper with his legs for the win in 13 minutes. Excellent match. 3.75 stars, B+. Danielson grabbed the mic saying he wanted to teach Moriarty about violence. Then he demanded an answer from John Moxley. So Mox made his entrance, told a story about the first time they fought on the Indies and how he's never actually beaten Danielson. Mox said Brian's offer was exciting and he couldn't think of a reason to say no, but maybe Danielson's offer in the first place came because he's scared of what Mox can do to him. Mox put the decision in Danielson's hands. He said he's not going to say yes or no, but he would never partner with someone he hasn't blood with first. So basically, Mox told Brian, fight me at Revolution for the chance to possibly create the stable that you want without saying so specifically. It was an extremely well done segment, strong promos from both guys. I want the match. I want the faction. It will be interesting to see how they develop this, if they develop it, who wins the match, what actually happens. It's probably, though, the storyline in AEW that most intrigues me. And by the way, one last thing. You know who Danielson actually should form this faction with? Serena Deeb. Like, it would be unique to have male and female co-leaders of a faction, and their current gimmicks would completely work together with Deeb doing the professor's challenge, wanting to teach and brutalize all these young talents, and Danielson saying he wants to teach these people violence. That makes all the sense in the world and would be something truly unique. But hey, I'm not the AEW booker. On Dynamite, Hangman Adam Page said three words before Adam Cole interrupted him. Cole put over Page's reign and said he's been world champion wherever he's been. Page talked about Cole watching from afar while his Bullet Club buddy started AEW. Cole pointed out they all left Hangman, and every time they've been in a promotion together, Page has always been the other Adam to Cole. Hangman wanted to fight. Cole reiterated he has legit love and respect for him. Then he extended a hand. They shook. 
and Cole left. As Cole was like halfway up the ramp, Red Dragon attacked. Cole came back for the beatdown and then Dark Order. They didn't arrive until security came out first. Ten then attacked a bunch of security guards for absolutely no reason whatsoever to such a convoluted finish that Adam Cole challenged him later. But I don't. it didn't make any sense because Ten didn't do anything to Adam Cole. The end was convoluted. This was another solid in-ring segment, though. It was. It's interesting, by the way, how AEW has gotten some ex-WWE guys who can actually talk on the mic. And all of a sudden, Dynamite is a very differently booked show, very heavy in promo segments, where it never used to be like that. This has been the obvious title match at Revolution. It'll be great when they get there. A good start, I would say, to the one-on-one version of the feud. I got a DM slide from Brett Charles Malam, at Brett underscore Malam. He says, as, you, as you've noted in the past, Hangman isn't nearly as over as he should be as champion. Generally, WWE and AEW seem to struggle with babyface world champions. The chase is great, but the follow through after they win kind of sucks. And I think part of that is because they keep putting Paige in the ring to cut promos, which isn't how he got over. He seems to be away from the drinking gimmick now, but that was how he got over also. These in-ring promos just don't seem to be playing to his strengths. I actually agree with that. He's not a particularly good talker, but that's not really an excuse for WWE. When they just put the title on Big E, who's a great talker, and then they have a heel like Bobby Lashley, who's a terrible talker, but they're fully behind him, even though he has a mouthpiece and MVP. I think the general concept of struggling to book face champions is fair, though. AEW struggles with it. WWE struggles with it. Don't forget... The Mox title reign was not nearly as good as it as the chase was. Now, it was really good, and there wasn't anything wrong with it, like there is, in my opinion, with the Hangman Page reign, but it, it did have a little bit less to it than the chase. The chase is always more exciting than the ultimate accomplishment. But yes, with Hangman, I don't like the way his gimmick has just turned now to a guy who says cowboy shit as opposed to being about cowboy shit like he used to be. The drinking thing, just having that completely disappear because he won the championship. Now he's not depressed anymore, I guess. Like that just was strange. So no, I'm not really loving his title reign. Uh, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that that it's indicative of problems in WWE and AEW. In WWE, they had a great talker in the role this year and they failed to get him over as the world champion. They failed to book him well as the world champion. On Dynamite, uh, Keith Lee cut a short taped promo about qualifying for the face of revolution match and how his goals were all in front of him to win the TNT title. Pretty solid. Then we got a qualifying match, Wardlow versus Max Caster. Pretty weak rap from Caster this week. He had a chance to mention Cody Rhodes and didn't. Big fail. Caster punched Wardlow with a chain and hit an elbow drop for a near fall. Wardlow then hit three power bombs for the win. Bowens attacked after the bell. Sean Spears didn't help. Wardlow powerbombed Bowens too. Then Spears ran in with the chair to get some shots. This was basically what it needed to be. I got another DM slide, Chad Placinka at I Don't Exaggerate. Really appreciate the optimism about Keith Lee and AEW, but what makes you think he won't get buried in the mid-card and put on the back burner after a big debut like Christian, Brian Cage, Ruby Soho, Andrade, Lance Archer? It even took Miro forever to gain traction. I know some of those names had a feud and a cup of coffee, but all have been underutilized. I mean, I think, look, anything is possible. We don't know what Keith Lee's career in AEW is going to be like, but there's plenty of people in AEW right now being consistently pushed. And Keith is a really special guy from a working perspective. Plus, let's just be candid. One of the big negative marks on the company right now is their lack of minority talent in the main event scene, especially when it comes to black main event talent. And Keith 
fits that. But beyond that, he's an extremely talented wrestler. He's a great talker. And you saw the reaction the crowd gave him. It was way bigger than the reaction that Andrade got, for example, when he made his debut. So I think there's every reason in the world for them to get behind Keith Lee. Is there a chance he wins the TNT title, drops the TNT title, and just kind of gets lost in the midcard? I do think it's possible. Anything is possible. It would be unfortunate. And I do wish for more consistency across the board from AEW when it comes to their big talent getting opportunities. I mean, you look at Miro, the guy, I know he was injured and he was out for a little bit, but he's healthy now and he's just not there at all. Andrade, I mean, he's there, he's never wrestling and his segments are mostly nonsensical when he's in them. So you really say to yourself, how much better is it? How much greener is the grass for certain people? Ruby Soho has had great matches, actually, on a couple of occasions. But she's also had some pretty disappointing matches. And now she's just another name in the division while they're back to Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa once again. And you just kind of look at it and you're like, well, okay, maybe there is something to what you're saying, Charles, uh, Chad. But I don't know, maybe there's not also. So I think everyone's an individual. Everyone's different. Let's see how they book Keith Lee. Um, let's give him a chance before we just criticize it for really no good reason off the bat. On Dynamite, we also had Chris Jericho and Jake Hager against Santana and Ortiz. Eddie Kingston returned after Santana and Ortiz entered to stand at ringside. Ortiz stopped Jericho's lion salt so Santana could sweep him back off the ropes. Then they hit Street Sweeper for a 2.9. Jericho caught Santana trying a cannonball and countered it into a lion tamer, but Santana reached the ropes. Kingston jumped on the ring apron, so Jericho did his springboard dropkick onto Eddie. Then Jericho missed Judas effect on Santana, and Santana was able to turn around and beat him with the discus lariat. Jericho would, after Kingston, after the bell, they were immediately separated. So he didn't really get a resolution to the inner circle situation. And Jericho Kingston now seems to be as obvious as it ever was for Revolution. I've been talking about it for months at this point. Good match, 3.5 stars and a B. I'm sure more will be clarified next week. It was definitely the right booking to have Santana and Ortiz go over. But I really kind of hope that they don't break up inner circle, even though it does seem like it's at least a possibility. On Dynamite, we had the TNT Championship match, Sammy Guevara versus Darby Allen. The crowd was hot for this even before the bell. Sammy dropped Darby's full body across the top turnbuckle, then hit a draping senton bomb on him. Sammy then hurt his knee and Darby hit coffin splashes into him. Sammy took Darby off the top with an incredible avalanche Spanish fly for a near fall. Sammy then exposed his injured knee, which made no sense whatsoever. They slapped each other while Sammy was in a figure four. Darby hit the -the over-the-top stunner before Sammy caught a tope suicida with a cutter outside, which was a great spot. Sammy then missed a senton bomb on the ring apron. Jose and Andrade El Idolo at this point ran in to distract and interfere. Andrade smashed Darby on the head with a tablet as he was trying for the coffin drop. That allowed Sammy to wake up, shrug, pick Darby off the top rope, and hit the GTH for the win. Matt Hardy then ran down after to attack Darby because, of course, Andrade then hit Sammy with the tablet and held up both titles and Sting chased them off with the bat. Sammy still looked like a moron carrying two identical titles, as did Andrade picking up both titles at the end of the segment. Sammy also made a really weird move exposing his knee before he stopped selling it. Why would you take a knee pad off a knee that's injured? Doesn't make any sense. Then he actually used that knee, his main knee, for the finish, the GTH, and didn't sell that using it hurt him in the finish. I was set to give this the best match of the week grade. The best match right now I had um, was Cameron Grimes and Carmelo Hayes at 4.25 stars. But those weird decisions, the lack of selling, plus the finish had me downgrade this a full half point. 
I ended up at four stars and an A minus. Still great, just not as great as it could have been. The storyline also remains odd because now it seems like it should be a tag team feud as opposed to a triple threat match, which is what I thought we were getting. So just very strange, and I'm not really show, sure uh, why they're going in that direction. Let's move on. On Rampage, we had a tag team title match, Jurassic Express against the Gun Club. Luchasaurus got the hot tag and ran through the ass boys. Jungle Boy accidentally hit Luchasaurus in the back with a tope suicida. Jungle Boy then took a belt shot to the head, but kicked out at 2.9. Luchasaurus chokeslammed Austin Gunn into some plants, in, like in the ringside area, or in the uh, crowd area, I should say. Christian Cage then took out Billy Gunn at ringside, and Jungle Boy hit Colton with Christian's kill switch for the win. This was fine. It's interesting that these guys have been relegated to Rampage for their matches. That's basically all I'm going to say. Three stars, B- minus here for the main event. It got plenty of time. On Dynamite, they announced a triple threat tag team title match for Revolution, with the challengers to be determined in, get this, a regular tag team battle royal, and then a casino tag team battle royal in consecutive weeks. That to me is just so nonsensical. Why not allow the final two teams in the first battle royal to be the challengers, just like you did for the Dynamite Diamond Ring match. The final two people fought for the ring. Or make the other match a gauntlet or any other type of match. Or how about using your rankings, you tout, where the acclaimed is the number one ranked team. So there's a chance that they have a triple threat tag team title match at Revolution without the number one ranked challengers in the match. I bet they don't even wind up in the match. I just didn't like this, uh, the idea of it. Maybe it'll be entertaining and, and good wrestling, but the booking was strange. There was also a backstage segment later with the Bucks and Red Dragon both arguing over the Battle Royals. Then they walked in different directions and Cole got stuck not knowing which way to go. I did think that segment was well done. On Rampage, we had the Young Bucks against Rapongi Vice. The Bucks tricked Vice up the ramp and attacked to try for a countout. Danhausen got pulled from under the ring and then left. Vice did a Doomsday Device style knee outside. Then there was a ton of like four-man choreography here. Trent Beretta hit an avalanche release German suplex and strong zero on Matt Jackson with Nick breaking the fall. Trent then broke one after a Meltzer driver. There was basically no tagging. The Bucks won with a BTE trigger. Orange Cassidy and Brandon Cutler did a comedy bit. Orange ate a double super kick. Then Jay White ran in and hit Blade Runner. I gave the match, I don't know, 3.25 stars and a B. Some exciting moves. It just wasn't for me at all. I continue to hate the Jay White usage here. Like they made a big deal about having him. He did a backstage segment and a two second ring appearance. And that's all he did his first week with AEW. Just really not good across the board. On Rampage, it was great to see Britt Baker return to the ring against someone named Robin Renegade in a non-title match. Baker won with a stomp in seven minutes and 30 seconds. Then she added the lockjaw after the bell. Thunder Rosa made the save and got some shots in before Jamie Hayter attacked. Then Mercedes Martinez pushed her out of the way. So she could attack Rosa and they argued. It was good. I thought that AEW finally put Baker back on TV inside the ring and let her wrestle. But, you know, most of the time I'm criticizing women's matches being too short. It should never take her seven minutes and 30 seconds to beat a straight up jobber. It was it was like they knew there was only going to be one women's match on the show and they just wanted to make sure it lasted enough time. Very silly. I didn't like that. The post-match stuff, so predictable. I maintain that the usage of Baker remains quite poor. On Dynamite, we had Martinez against Rosa in a no disqualification match. Baker told Martinez backstage to finish the job. Martin Cove was randomly by her side. The match quickly went into the crowd. Rosa jumped off a really weak barricade that looked shaky, and I was pretty scared for her uh, with a splash. Then we got a really long commercial break. Martinez superplexed Rosa into a propped up table. 
except they didn't break it. Well, I guess it technically broke, but they slid down the table. No idea why it wasn't set up regular style. Super dangerous. Uh, Rosa hurricaned Martinez off the ropes, then drop kicked her inside a trash can, but Bar- Martinez grabbed the bottom rope. Martinez then German suplexed Rosa while hanging on the top rope and tripped off the top rope on an elbow drop that nearly took out Rosa's skull. Rosa hit a crucifix bomb, then drove Martinez into a stack of chairs where Rosa took all the punishment because she just sat on them and she got the win. Uh, Rosa helped Martinez up and bowed to her. Martinez went to her knees. Baker then for some reason needed Cove to tell her to have the women attack Rosa. I know they were doing a Cobra Kai thing, but it just, why she needed that didn't make any sense. I got an Amber Alert on my TV at this point. So I have no idea what happened next, but I assume they also attacked Martinez. There were so many minor botches in this match, but the work was okay. Given we had the NXT cage match as a direct comparison this week, this did not hold up to that. I put it at 2.75 stars and a C plus. The post-match and setup for Baker versus Rosa was completely expected. The match hit, that's the best way I can put it, but the storyline for me did not hit. And that's obviously not ideal. On Dynamite, there was a House of Black vignette with Malachi Black playing with tarot cards and Brody King asking who they were waiting for. Black said, history. That to me, history harkens back to WWE, makes me think they may be talking about Buddy Murphy, now known as Buddy Matthews. There's been rumors about him joining up with Black, but now that Black is actually building the stable and Brody King is already there, it makes a ton of sense for Buddy to be next. You guys know I am a massive Buddy Matthews fan and would be extremely excited to see him in AEW. But again, it feels like this is something that should have happened already. And now it just seems like they're adding people to add people. When you look at this roster, you're like, we still don't see Malachi Black wrestle consistently enough. When are we ever going to see Buddy Matthews wrestle? Like they added Tony Nese. We never see Tony Nese on television, right? It's just, I... I don't know what they're doing, but if you look at this roster right now, it is a vastly different look from what it's been a year ago, uh, even as as late as a year ago. And now if you keep adding people to it, who the hell knows what it's going to look like coming up soon. Also on Rampage, we had Hook versus Blake Lee. Hook tossed this kid like a ragdoll. QT Marshall distracted at one point, giving Lee an opening. Hook simply dodged a high-risk move, hit a T-bone suplex, and won with Red Rum. This should have been on Dark. Not every Hook match needs to be on Rampage. I'm interested in seeing what he does against QT. I'm not just interested in seeing people mark out over this completely green um, neophyte at this point. Like he, I need more. I need more to chew on here. And I'm really just not getting it, which is unfortunate. Again, have him do more work on Dark. Have his significant matches be on Rampage if you want. That's totally fine. Also, we never see Team Taz together anymore. We see Hook wrestle. We see Ricky Starks occasionally wrestle maybe with Uh, powerhouse Hobbs by his side, or we see him on commentary where powerhouse Hobbs is standing behind him. We just don't see Team Taz together. Just like we rarely see Pinnacle together, although we did recently. And for a long time, we rarely saw Inner Circle together, although obviously we have recently. But, you know, again, just some things that to me are a little bit nonsensical. But that was it from AEW this week. Rampage, again, a show I can completely do without. Dynamite, extremely good. Two weeks in a row, awesome shows, maybe the best back-to-back weeks of Dynamite we've had in, I don't know, like a year, maybe? Like, I don't know. They they were just great episodes back-to-back. I'm really liking what they're doing. I love the build for Revolution. The card is shaping up nicely. So there should be a lot of really positive momentum right now behind AEW. And that is really it uh, for this week here 
in the Thursday episode talking NXT and AEW. Let me give you a reminder about what we've already done this week and what is still to come. In the bag already, we have our special 30-minute instant reaction to Cody Rhodes and Brandy Rhodes leaving AEW. We also have our entire WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview, where we break down every single match with predictions, thoughts on the card, uh, what happened, everything else from this week in WWE, and our projections for WrestleMania 38. So what's left? What's coming up here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast this week? Well, I'll tell you. On Saturday, 10.30 a.m. Eastern, we will have a live Getting Over pre-show for Elimination Chamber on Twitter Spaces. You need to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can join into that live show. It's completely free. You listen to us, um, break down the card, talk about the go-home moments that happened on SmackDown, any other major stuff that happened on that show, and of course, get our final preview for Elimination Chamber. At the end of that live show, you guys will be able to participate, asking questions, providing comments. I'll open up the mics. You guys get to join us in conversing about the show. Then Saturday, as soon as Elimination Chamber goes off the air, we will have an instant analysis podcast right for you wherever you are listening to this show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you're listening to Getting Over right now, we will have an instant analysis podcast for you as soon as that show goes off the air. And then, of course, the following week, next week, we'll be back on Tuesday with our WWE show and back on Thursday talking AEW and NXT. A second reminder, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only so you can participate and listen to the live show, but so you can vote in our pre and post show polls ahead of and after Elimination Chamber. And you know I would be remiss if I ended the show without reminding you that Getting Over. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love the show. The ratings and reviews help us massively, especially during this busy time of our year on the road to WrestleMania. We hope to do the most traffic we have in the calendar. I appreciate you all listening to another edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Saturday with our full elimination chamber coverage. So at this point, I'm just going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.